And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy 620, or you're listening to the podcast over at investinghope.com, or iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are found. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Some things going on here in Tennessee, uh, court decisions being made that are good for the pro-life movement, uh, some things happening around the country, uh, talking about pregnancy centers and the work that they're doing. There was a research paper put out uh, that the goal of that paper was to kind of attack pregnancy centers, but they actually did the opposite by highlight, highlighting the great work that pregnancy centers do. We're also going to look at some... Um, some documents that were put forth to go for the, the Supreme Court case out of Mississippi uh, that that's showing 3D and 4D ultrasound images that that are going to, uh, I think, uh, play a role there. But I want to start with some big, big news out of the state of New York, and that is that Governor Cuomo resigns after the investigation that found that he harassed multiple women. So New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has resigned from office. After a bombshell report released by State Attorney General found that he sexually harassed 11 women, including some who worked in his office and violated state and federal laws. Cuomo had faced an, uh, a lot of calls for his departure. The president had called for him to resign. Other uh, high-ranking Democratic leaders, of course, Republican leaders as well. And even there in the state, uh, there was an impeachment hearing in the state assembly and that uh, appeared but guaranteed to spark a trial in the state Senate should he have survived potential impeachment proceedings. He also faced daunting re-election, re-election prospects in 2022. His resignation followed a 45-minute news conference from Rita Glavin, his attorney, during which she refuted the allegations in the report and attacked the credibility of the investigators and women who came forward with accusations. But Cuomo, in his own press conference immediately after, announced he would be stepping down in 14 days. And he said this, I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to government. And therefore, that's what I'll do. Because I work for you, and doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we see, as we say, it's not about me, it's about we, end quote. His resignation also follows widespread questions about his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, particularly in the state's nursing homes. Uh, we talked about that on this show multiple times last year. Uh, in the beginning of the year, you can go back and listen to, to old shows where we go into the numbers out of New York and, and the terrible decision uh, to put infected patients back into nursing homes there in the state of New York. The independent investigation launched by James's office was started in March after several women publicly accused Cuomo of sexual misconduct. Investigators found that Cuomo engaged in inappropriate conduct with current and former staffers and at least one state trooper who was assigned to his protective detail. The report was finalized after attorneys interviewed 179 individuals, reviewed 74,000 pieces of evidence. They say this, These interviews and pieces of evidence reveal a deeply disturbing yet clear picture that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed current and former state employees in violation of both federal and state laws. The independent investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanting uh, groping, kissing, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. The blockbuster findings reignited calls from his resignation from both for his resignation from both Democrats and Republicans who said his actions were beyond the pale. This report highlights unacceptable behavior by Governor Cuomo and his administration. 
Uh, and let's see, the, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, said, As I said when these disturbing allegations first came to light, the governor must resign for the good of the state. Now that the investigation is complete and the allegations have been substantiated, it should be clear to everyone that he can no longer serve as governor. Prior to the, his resignation, the number of Democrats who had called for his departure had snowballed to most Democrats in the state legislature, the head of the state party, to the pinnacles of Washington. The sexual harassment scandal compounded the criticism Cuomo faced after it was revealed his office intentionally undercounted the number of coronavirus-related deaths in nursing homes by several thousand and sought to hide the true tally, in part over fears that a higher count would be wielded as a political cudgel by then-President Trump. Cuomo had apologized for both scandals but denied any wrongdoing toward any women he interacted with. Maintaining his conduct should not be considered sexual harassment. Even as the cause for his resignation piled up, he remained defiant and insisted he would not leave office. That all changed today. His resignation marks an, uh, an end to a political career that spanned decades. He served as the Secretary of Housing and Urban, Urban Development during the Clinton administration before becoming the New York Attorney General and later Governor. His popularity soared during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic with his daily televised press conference only to see his approval rating crater in light of the sexual harassment and nursing home scandals. He also wrote a book during the pandemic, which I find interesting, uh, that was the number one Times bestseller. And then the truth comes out. His resignation will elevate Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul to the governorship, making her the first female executive of the state of New York. So I did want to start there because I thought that it was important to... Uh, that's big news. That's big news that we can't overlook. So that happened today. Governor Cuomo announced his resignation. Uh, he will be in office for about 14 more days. And so that's been the interesting thing. I'll get into the other topics here in a second. But, but the interesting thing about what we're seeing, what we've seen really over the uh, last 18 months or so <clears throat> across the country is we've seen some, we've seen a lot of governors do a lot of things. And depending on what party they're in and, and depending on what narrative they're pushing, they're celebrated or they're maligned. They get a lot of camera time or they get no camera time. And so it's an interesting thing that we, we do for ourselves in our, in our current culture when it comes to media, when it comes to politics, when it comes to uh, conversations dealing with things that matter. And, and so we were quick in New York. A lot of people said, oh, Cuomo is, is setting himself up to be a presidential candidate with the way he handled the, the pandemic in the early stages there in New York. And then we find out that he was putting infected patients in nursing homes and they were hiding the numbers and they were uh, not putting out true numbers. And then you, you, you didn't just have Republicans calling for transparency in the, uh, in the state of New York. You had Democrats coming out and saying, Hey, the numbers don't add up. Uh, this wasn't handled well. And then you add on there the, the sexual harassment charges and, and you see that, that we created a celebrity culture in politics. Now, yes, politicians have been celebrities for a long time. I mean, JFK, uh, you go back to JFK, he was a celebrity. Every president is a celebrity. But now we've created where it's not just the person that holds the Oval Office that's a celebrity. Now we have governors that are, that are seeking to be celebrities. Not all of them, but some of them seeking that. That airtime on CNN, seeking that airtime on Fox News, seeking that airtime on talk radio shows. We have senators and congressmen becoming celebrities, having having their own podcast, writing books. 
And so the, the question is, are they public servants first or are they celebrities? I mean, we, we, we all know that they typically become wealthy, wealthier once they become a congressman or a senator or a president. I mean, they, they make a lot of money and they become celebrities. Now what we have is we have a lot of folks that, that they, the celebrity itch is being scratched. And so they're, they're doing podcasts and they have advertisements or they're, uh, writing books and they're, they're going on book tours. They're, they're traveling all over the country, all over the world. And it's not about their constituents. It's about, Hey, how many times can I be on camera? How much money can I raise for my campaign? And, and, and how can I keep everybody riled up and angry all the time about everything? And that's just the sad place of where we are. You know, all of us just want to be mad about something. And, and it's a, it's sad. It really is. We, because we live in that state of anger and frustration and bitterness, we, we neglect how good we truly have it here, not just here in the state of Tennessee, but across this country. I mean, we don't understand. We don't understand how good we have it. People on the left, people on the right, people everywhere in between. It, we, we find ourselves in a constant state of rage. And if you don't believe me, just go look on social media. Everybody's angry about everything. And so whether it's a road rage incident or uh, it's I'm, I'm angry because the school line is taking too long or I'm angry because they got my order wrong or or whatever. We're just angry. Frustrated. I think some of that is because we're bored. We've progressed so far as a society that that we're not getting up like our ancestors did to go work the field, to go farm all day long, and to crash when the sun goes down, and then do it all over again the next day, wake up with the sun and go to sleep when it retreats. You see, we're bored. And so because of that, we have time to get angry about things. We have time to be scrolling through social media 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, I often make fun of my dad because he still has a flip phone and doesn't have the Internet. But, man, there's something intriguing about that. And that's a fact. He doesn't have access to the Internet. If he needs something printed, he goes to church and they print it for him. Or Kroger. I don't know why that, but he goes to Kroger and they'll print it for him. If he needs something to be looked up, he calls me and says, hey, can you get on the Google and find this for me? Yet he gets frustrated and angry too because of talk radio and, and different things like that. And so... My question for us is, as we go into these other topics that I'm going to cover today is are we allowing ourselves to enjoy anything? Maybe to sit back and, and, and enjoy what's happening around us. I mean, are we? Or, or, or are we just thinking about the chaos and the uh, the frustration of Washington and the frustration of this politician and that politician, or are we taking some time to just go, man, you know, it's a beautiful day in East Tennessee, or 
you know what? I'm blessed to have my children or I'm blessed to have my health or I'm blessed to have a job or I'm blessed to be retired or whatever that may be. Or do we just get so angry about everything all the time? And I'm just going to say, if you if you have kids and you're the type that gets angry all the time about everything, what do you think they're going to do? I mean, I was we were watching music videos last night and uh, and I said, Sam Hunt, he's a country singer. And I said, I don't know what Sam Hunt's doing with his hair. I said it out loud. Nobody said anything. And then the video came on and, and my son, who's 10, goes. What is he doing with his hair, Daddy? Now, why do you think my son said that? Do you think my son saw Sam Hunt's hair and thought, you know what, I don't know if I agree with that haircut? No, he said that because he heard me say it. And he's a sponge, and he says what I say. The other day, I, I stubbed my my leg. We were We were stacking some wood, and I hit my leg, and I almost said a word I shouldn't say. And my son looked at me and said, you caught yourself. I said, I did. I did. I caught myself from saying the word I shouldn't say. But he knew what word it was. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but he knew what word it was. And so as we as we think about those things, if we're angry about everything all the time and our kids see that, well, then they're going to think, well, I need to be angry and concerned and, and have anxiety about everything all the time as well. Folks, we can't do that. That, That's unsustainable. So what happened in New York? The governor resigned, as he should have. I mean, I think this is one of the most bipartisan things we've seen over the last 15 months. Democrats and Republicans coming together to say the governor of New York should resign. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple weeks. But but we, as a collective group, can't spend hours on end being angry about everything. Now, there are certainly things that we should be angry about, righteously so. I'm angry about abortion and the effect that it's having on uh, on our country and our world. I'm angry about it. If you listen to this show every week, you know that I'm angry about it. But we can't let some of these frustrations absorb everything and, and, and kind of be our idol at that point. Right? So I can be angry about abortion, but that can't become my idol. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue the conversation, some big news in the state of Tennessee. As the federal appeals court on Thursday, that's last Thursday, issued a ruling upholding Tennessee's 48-hour waiting period for an abortion, overturning a lower court's previous ruling that found the rule to be unconstitutional. The U.S. Sixth Circuit judge uh, wrote in the majority opinion that the plaintiffs in the case, the Bristol Regional Women's Center and the Memphis Center for Reproductive Health, had not provided evidence that proved the waiting period was a, quote, substantial obstacle, end quote, for women seeking abortions. The law, which was enacted in 2015, requires that a physician provide a patient seeking an abortion with information about the risk of abortions and pregnancies and then wait two days before performing the procedure. 
A physician who violates this law will be considered to have committed a Class E felony. The law does not apply if a physician determines that waiting two days would threaten the patient's life. The appeals court wrote that Tennessee's waiting period was in fact constitutional as it had not been shown to be an obstacle for a large fraction of women who are seeking abortions. It also pointed to statistical evidence that showed women in Tennessee continued to obtain abortions in large numbers even after the 48-hour waiting period was enacted, with roughly the same amount of abortions performed in the years before and after it went into effect. It is one thing to predict that the sky will fall tomorrow. It's quite another thing to maintain that the sky fell five years ago for women seeking abortions when the numbers tell us otherwise, the court wrote. In the case that the two-day waiting period causes a woman to miss a deadline to have a medical abortion by which the patient is administered a pill, the court argued that she still had the option of receiving a surgical abortion. The court also found that the plaintiffs had not been able to show that a significant amount of women would be forced out of the window to get an abortion by the waiting period. U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, Karen Nelson Moore, was the sole justice to dissent, citing the, quote, severe logistical, financial, medical, and psychological burdens, end quote, that the law imposes on women. That sounds like a, a an advocate, not a judge, but I digress. Tennessee Attorney General Herbert Slatery, who is named as one of the defendants in the case, said in a statement to the Associated Press that he found the court's decision gratifying. He also pointed to academic literature that argues that that law exasperates uh, stereotypes about women as being irrational or overly emotional. A law passed by our representative lawmakers and signed by the governor five years ago, yes, five years ago, is constitutional, Slatery said. It has been on the books a long time. The court concluded that during this time, the 48-hour waiting period has not been a substantial obstacle to getting an abortion in Tennessee. Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, criticized the court ruling. With this law, she said, politicians are purporting that they know better than patients when it comes to making personal decisions about their health care. It's demeaning and medically unnecessary, Northrop said to the AP. And so, what did we find out there? We found out that the 48-hour waiting period is constitutional. Uh, now, it took a couple courts to decide that. Uh, but but I, I find it interesting that the court said, look, we gave you an opportunity. We gave these abortion organizations and their attorneys an opportunity to provide us with data that showed that women had more burdens to getting an abortion because of this law. We gave you the opportunity to provide data and to provide stories and an actual thing, something that we could look at, tangible evidence that this hindered women. And the court said, you showed us nothing. Zero. Zero things. And so that's where we are. And it's interesting to me when, when folks say, well, we'll just take this to the courts and we'll let the courts decide. And then the courts decide and we're like, we don't like the courts and their decisions. Now we both, we do that on both sides. But, but this law, this is a win for pro-lifers. The 48 hour waiting period is a, is a big deal. And it's, it's not uh, it's not a crazy thing to say you are you are going to make a decision that is going to end the life of a human being. You should probably take some time to do that. Why is that a crazy thing to say? The law already says if a doctor sees that that the woman is at risk for of death, if her life is at stake, 
they can go ahead and do it. They can waive the 48-hour requirement. The law says that. So what would be other reasons why folks would, would be against this law? Well, abortion proponents are against this law because, well, if we can't get them in right now and have that abortion, we may lose out on the sale of that abortion. We may lose money. They may change their mind. They may go get a second opinion. They may go talk to uh, the man that, that got them pregnant. They may go talk to their mom or dad. They may go talk to their pastor. They may go talk to a pregnancy center. They may go talk to their friend. They may go talk to a counselor and start to see things a little bit different. Who knows what that reason may be, but the abortion clinic, the last thing they want to happen is that that patient would change her mind. And so if that patient comes in and gets an ultrasound and then has to wait 48 hours, the abortion clinic, the abortion industry, they're nervous about that 48 hours because a mind could be changed. You see, if you don't have the 48-hour waiting period and you got them in the abortion clinic and you have them in the exam room and, and you, you tell them, look, you don't want this baby. Here, let me just give you some pills and we'll take care of it now. You see, you start that process, boom, right then, while it's on their mind, while they don't have a time to second guess, while they don't have a chance to go talk to anybody else. You got them in there. That's ultimately why they were fighting this bill. How do I know that? Because they couldn't produce any data, any evidence, any patient story where this hindered them from giving, getting an abortion. It's pretty simple. If this was such a, a, a bad thing and such a, a hindrance for women getting an abortion, and, and it was making women miss their window, then wouldn't they have had a long line, a long list of women that would have said, I'll go speak in front of the court and I'll let them know the burdens that I had to deal with, the hoops that I had to jump through. But they had zero. They couldn't get any folks to come and stand on their behalf. You see, the 48-hour waiting period gives a, that baby a chance, gives that mom a chance. They may still ultimately get an abortion. But look, even if I went in today and I had tore my ACL, they may not do surgery today. You know, I may go get a second opinion. I may go talk to a physical therapist. I may go look around and look at my options because I don't want to rush into anything. If I, if I need back surgery, I may go see a number of folks. I don't want to rush into anything. If I need my tonsils taken out, I may get a second opinion. Don't want to rush in to anything. But with abortion, they say, no, happen. It has to happen right now. You know what? During COVID, we got to get the pills in the mail right now. Why is that? It's because it's a cash cow. And they know. They know that if they have time to think about it, they may change their mind. And so really, if you cared about women and women's rights, then you would say, take as much time as you need. This is a forever decision. Take as much time as you need. But they're not doing that. They're not saying that. Why? Because they don't want you to take as much time as you need. They know the, the best answer for you today. You need to get an abortion, and we're going to take care of that. The last thing you need to do is think on this 
for a, for a certain amount of time. So I'm thankful that the courts decided that this law is in fact constitutional. It's one step closer to a, a, a place where life is affirmed and celebrated. And so I applaud the state of Tennessee, the governor and the attorneys and everyone that fought on behalf of life. Thank you for doing that. And a difference has been made. And you'll see as we come up in the next segment, we're going to talk about what's happening uh, with the Supreme Court case. And then we're going to look at some, some pregnancy center data and information that's important as well. All of this plays a role in getting us to a place where life is celebrated. And that's a role that we're honored to play in your, we'll be back. So I've talked for quite a while over the last, uh, I don't know, a few weeks, couple months about the case out of Mississippi, uh, looking at the Supreme Court, looking at it. And, and so there's some more things happening there. We'll hopefully hear a decision in the near future. But in one of the 80 briefs submitted to the Supreme Court on behalf of Mississippi in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, three medical doctors obtained special permission to include images of unborn children, including ultrasound images. The brief was filed by attorney Heather Hacker on behalf of medical doctors, um, as well as the Catholic Association Foundation where children are where Christie is a policy advisor. In addition to offering other arguments against the court rulings in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the brief takes aim at the flawed medical science on which the justices based their decisions. It points out that the viability standard used by justices in both rulings is long outdated because newborn infants are able to survive after birth at a much earlier gestational age than was possible when that case was were decided. And so what that means is we have progressed in our science and our technology and our ability to keep a baby alive if they are born premature. Whereas in 1973, that was much different. In 1992, that was much different. And in 2021, that is much different. And it should affect the decision the courts make. You can't claim viability and never change the definition of what viability means. Viability in 1973 was much different than viability in 2021. And that's what these folks are pointing out. The brief also points out that medical technology has advanced to the point of allowing us to capture 3D and 4D ultrasound images of unborn children. At most stages of pregnancy, a clear illustration of the humanity denied by the court. In fact, these types of technological advancements have led the medical field to begin treating unborn children as patients in every context but abortion, even developing the capacity for surgery performed on children in the womb. That's correct. We can perform surgery on children in the womb and also abort them. Think about that. All of these developments are remarkable enough, chronicled as they are in in the brief, but the doctor's contribution is especially notable for its images, which show the reader to include, hopefully, the justices deciding the case, how far the science of ultrasound has come, what life in the womb looks like at different stages of development, and how recognizably human unborn children are are from very early in pregnancy. In other words, the brief illustrates the inescapable reality of the humanity of the unborn, a reality ignored and often outright denied by supporters of abortion and the court's abortion jurisprudence. And so this matters because we live in a time where everyone talks about scientific advancement. 
Everyone talks about, are you pro-science or anti-science? Then if that's the case, it would behoove the, the Supreme Court, the justices and everyone involved to look at the science of ultrasound, to look at medical science and what it allows us to do in 2021 versus what it allowed us to do in 1973. Right? We talked about it before that there was a time in our country where we allowed for some people to enslave other people. Now, some people may say, well, that was the sign of the times. I disagree with that. That's insane. It was anti-gospel and it was wrong to enslave anyone. But guess what we did? We, we said, regardless of what the times are, slavery needs to go away. Now, we had to fight a war for it. And some other things. And it went away. And then we lived in a time where people said, well, you know, still some humans are not as valuable as other humans. And so white people can drink at certain fountains, but black people have to drink in other fountains. And, you know, some people can vote, but other people can't vote. And and so we had women's suffrage. We had the Civil Rights Movement. We had the Disability Act. Because we were saying... You know what? Just because you're disabled, that doesn't matter. We don't need to have ramps into doors. We don't need to to, to help you in, in terms of getting jobs. And, and So disability, folks with disabilities were being discriminated against. And guess what we did? We fixed it and corrected it. Why? Because we have progressed as a society and as a country. So then in 1973, we see Roe v. Wade come down. And we we live in a place where Abortion is okay, and they say, you know, if we ever get to a place where we know without a doubt it's a human, and when it becomes human, then this may change. And then 1992, we had another shot at it, and we failed there as well. But in 2021, with the technology, technological advancements, the scientific advancements, ultrasound, all the like, it is hard to argue that abortion is okay. Because... We can actually perform surgery on babies in the womb now. We can do other things. We can, we, we've progressed. That's a positive thing. You would think progressives would be okay with that, but they're not because of, why? Because abortion is the sacred cow. It's the golden calf. It's the one they can't let get away. No matter the advancements in science and technology. You see, I, I argue that every life has value because it was created in the image of God. But that doesn't matter much to the courts. So the argument to the courts is, hey, we've advanced to a place in science and technology where it's kind of barbaric to, to abort children in the womb with what we can do and see now. It's barbaric. It was barbaric. In 1973, we just didn't have the scientific advancement to show us just how barbaric it is. And now we know how barbaric it is. And so we'll see if those images help at all. But those are the type of images I like to see. You see, they're they're showing the humanity of the baby in the womb. That's an image that more people need to see. Early in, in the pregnancy, people need to see the humanity of the baby in the womb. Another great story coming out, uh, considering pregnancy centers is a new research paper has found that pregnant women who are considering abortion and visit a crisis pregnancy center 
are about 20% less likely to choose abortion than pregnant women who don't visit one. For those of us familiar with the work of these centers, of course, like Hope Resource Center, and who are inclined to believe the wealth of statistics suggesting that most pregnant women don't view abortion as their primary or most desirable option, even for an unplanned pregnancy, this result isn't very surprising. The entire purpose of a pregnancy center is to help women consider abortion alternatives and obtain the assistance they need to make it easier for them to continue pregnancy and give birth to their child. For some mothers, this means considering and choosing adoption. For others, it looks more like offering financial or material support and that the mother isn't receiving from the child's father or from her family. For others, it might simply be counseling and encouragement, the assurance that motherhood is a worthwhile choice and one that the woman is capable of undertaking. But in their conclusion, the authors of the study suggest that the higher rate of pregnant women choosing not to abort after visiting a pregnancy center must be at least in part because these centers are lying to the women who visit them. Pregnancy centers may be providing resources to people who are considering continuing their pregnancy and or they may be misleading people about the care and referrals they provide related to abortion. That's what the research paper said. They, they go further. Pregnant people need to access the accurate information, decision support, and resources to make the pregnancy or abortion decision that, that is best for them. This is hardly the first time that pregnancy centers have been accused with no evidence of providing fraudulent information to women and thereby convincing them not to abort. A few years back, abortion advocacy organization NARAL conducted an undercover investigation into pregnancy centers. They called it unmasking the fake clinics in which the group accused these centers of misleading women with lies such as this one. that more than 67% of the locations intentionally referred to the fetus as baby and told our investigators she was already a mother because she was already pregnant. Well, that's not a misleading uh, fact. That is a fact, is what that is. A fetus is a baby. And if you are pregnant, you are a mother. A pro-life perspective, to be sure, but also a factually accurate one and hardly an example of fraud or medical information. Nevertheless, supporters of abortion have long been fixated on pregnancy centers, even going so far as to lobby California to pass a law requiring them to advertise for the state's free or low-cost abortion program. An explicit violation, not only of the pro-life mission, but also of their free rights or free speech rights. <coughs> Excuse me. The law, of course, was struck down by the Supreme Court a few years back. Though this paper confirms that pregnancy centers enable abortion-minded women to choose life for their unborn children, it's evidently not without flaws. Not only does it speculate that this outcome might be the result of fraud, it does so without actually asking any of the women surveyed about their experience at the pregnancy center. As Lyman Stone pointed out, critiquing the paper, it contains a variety of odd comments, such as referring to women having visited, quote, an abortion provider or other legitimate medical provider, end quote, in contrast to visiting a pregnancy center. He also noted that the researchers asked women who continued pregnancy if they regretted their decision, but didn't ask women who chose abortion whether they regretted that choice. Once again, it seems impossible for pro-choice advocates to comprehend that in the majority of cases women don't actually want to choose abortion and that far from harming or misleading these women the majority of pregnancy centers actually offer women a real choice by giving them the help they need to choose life yeah that is what pregnancy centers do and so it's not surprising to me that that women are more likely to choose life if they go to a pregnancy center versus those that do not go to a pregnancy center of course they are I mean, what kind of research paper is that? It's not because they're being misled or, or manipulated. It's because they're seeing an ultrasound image. 
It's because they're being served well. It's because they're not being charged anything. It's because they're being cared for. It's because they're, they're being offered support. It's because they're getting another opinion. You see, if you cared holistically about these women, you wouldn't mind if they got another opinion. The only ones manipulating, the only ones uh, going out of their way to uh, to not be transparent with these women are the abortion industry, the abortion clinics. They're not handing them the image of their baby. They're calling the baby a fetus. They're saying there's no lasting ramifications of abortion. They're, they're telling them all these things. They're telling them they can't have their baby and their dreams. So who's the one manipulating? It's not the pregnancy center. We'll be back. In a world full of hate, be light. When you do somebody wrong, make it right. So as we finish up today, hopefully you've enjoyed the conversation. Look, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of things going on. A lot to be stressed about, a lot to be uh, anxious about and worried about. I just want to say that there's also a lot to be joyful about. And I, I know that sometimes that's difficult. Uh, look, I even I even find some anxiety and anxiousness in my heart and in my spirit at times. Uh, you know, and, and, and over the last fifteen or sixteen months, maybe more so, of just what 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 is the Lord moving me to do? Where do I play a role? And so, whether it's a pandemic or it's politics or it's court decisions. Or it's going back to school, or we homeschool, and what what are we doing? Or you know, it's just decisions after decisions after decisions, and trying to figure all those things out. What should we be angry about now? What should we not be angry about? Where where's the you know, what's church look like? What's church not look like? All of these things. Are we getting back to normal? Are we not getting back to normal? Are lockdowns coming back? Are masks coming back? Or you know, we get so anxious. And, and I don't have an answer for you, except that, that the God of the universe is sovereign. And I hope that brings you peace. I hope that brings you peace. You know, I, I, I get on here every single week and we talk about things that are going on here in the state and around the country and around the globe when it comes to abortion. And, and we may touch on some other things uh, every now and then that I think uh, we need to look at, but but ultimately, I, I, I hope you understand that we pay attention to these things, but these things can't become our idol. We pay attention to these things, but these things can't become our religion. Politics can't become your religion. Anger can't become your, your default state, your default posture. It can't. It doesn't need to. It's a dangerous place to be. We all get frustrated. We all get uh, upset. We all struggle. But we 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 do our best to get in get on the other side of that. And the only way we're going to get on the other side of that is if we find peace and comfort in the God of the universe. And I'm preaching that to myself right now, more so than than to you. Because we have those moments of, I just want to throw in the towel, kind of, you know, let's go, let's make a shift, 
let's detach, disengage from from everything that's happening. Because it's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. And so for the Christian, what we have to do is go, okay, where, where do we point some righteous anger and righteous frustration? But also understanding how do we love better in these situations, in these scenarios? How do we care for those around us? How do we be better parents, coworkers, bosses, leaders, employees, employers? What does that look like? I can't answer that for you. But at some point we have to make adjustments. We have to do something. And so I would encourage you, pray for the state of Tennessee when it comes to abortion laws. Pray for the Supreme Court when it comes to the case out of Mississippi. Pray for Mississippi. Pray for the attorneys that that are fighting on that case. Pray for women that are walking inside of abortion clinics right now as I talk. Pray for women that are walking in pregnancy centers right now as I talk. Pray for pastors in this area. Pray for students that are going back to school, teachers, administrators. Pray for Volunteer High School over east of, of Knoxville that, that had a scare this morning. You know, pray for these students as they're going back into, uh, for some, they're going back to school for the first time in over a year. I've talked to parents that said they went and met the, the student's teacher. It was the first time the parents were in the school in over a year. There's a lot to deal with. It's heavy. It's exhausting. So get some rest. Go to sleep at a decent time. Wake up at a decent time. It'll, you'll be amazed at what that does for you. You know, and we, we trust in these moments of chaos that the Lord will show up. And that's what I trust. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>